Back to the Culture Call on Praise 93.3 with L. Spencer Smith. Our desire is to reach and empower the community by discussing a cross-section of relevant topics from various perspectives that are essential to its growth and interpersonal connections. Be sure to save our call-in number 205-752-4800. Be sure to install the free Praise 93.3 app so you can send L. Spencer Smith a message or topic idea. Search for WTSK in your app store. This is a world premiere. Great morning, great morning, great morning, precious people. You know what time it is. That's right. It's time for the culture call right here on Praise 93.3 with your truly L. Spencer Smith. As always, this is the place where Tuscaloosa meets the world. Yes, absolutely. And for the next two hours from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., we're going to be right here. That's right, right here, talking a little bit about everything from society to sports, education, to economics, from religion to relationships. And as always, always, y'all, we try to create a safe space to have empowering, provocative, and yes, sometimes controversial conversations. And you know what? Uh, you, we haven't left you out. You can sit right here and chat it up. I'll call in as we learn together right here on the Culture Call. Want to send a shout out to Brother Jay, who again leaves it blazing every morning for me. Thank you for passing this hot baton. I'm going to try to handle it the best way I know how. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. And secondly, welcome to all of you who may be listening to us for the very first time on the Culture Call. We are so very glad and elated to have you with us on this morning. Uh, yes, this is the place where you're going to find us some information, and we want you to be a part, a welcome part of our community right here on the Culture Call. And of course, uh, last but certainly not least, all of our regular listeners, that's right, all of our consistent listeners who listen to the show every day. Thank you so much. Thank you for your encouragement. Thank you that when you see me, you hug me and tell me I'm doing a good job. You shake my hand. Yeah, all of those good things. I really, really, really appreciate it. And from the bottom of my heart, stay right here. Don't go anywhere. You make Culture Call exactly what it is. Listen, as I say every morning, I want to encourage you uh, to open up your phone. That's right. I know you've got it close to you. Open up your phone, and I need you to go to your app store on your Apple or your Android device and search out Praise 93.3. Yeah, you're going to find there a free 99 app. What does that mean? It doesn't cost you a thing to download it on your phone. That's right. Go ahead and do that now. Download it on your phone, and guess what? That will allow you to hear this broadcast and Praise 93.3 all around the world. That's right. Wherever you can get a signal, that app will make sure that you never miss out on what's happening here at on Praise 93 and definitely on the Culture Call. Absolutely. So whether you are in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, shout out to you guys. Baltimore, Maryland, shout out to my family there. Whether you're in Richmond, Virginia, yeah, I'm coming down the East Coast. Whether you're in Charleston, South Carolina, doesn't matter. And definitely, if you are here in Tuscaloosa, Alabama and all of the surrounding areas, you can hear the Culture Call. And we are so great to have you. We are so glad and great to have you. 
Listen, go ahead and send me your public service announcements and your events. If you have those, yeah, you can send them to culturecall.praise at gmail.com. That's culturecall.praise at gmail.com. Or you can go on our social media page on Facebook uh, at The Culture Call. That's right, The Culture Call, and like us. And then you can, number one, email us or you can message us your events. You can message us your, your flyer, your poster, whatever that is, whether it's your church, your organization, your sorority, your fraternity, your music group. Yeah, maybe you're having a revival or maybe you're an entrepreneur and, entrepreneur and you're having a business session that you want us to be a part of. No problem. If you send it to me, I will say it free 99 on the air so that everyone will know what's going on in your neck of the woods and show our faces because because you know I believe in faces in the place encourage you so much to continue what you are doing. You know why? Because we definitely do it better when we do it together. Absolutely. And of course, you can always take down this number, 205-752-4800, and give us a call, 205-752-4800, and you can give us a call. And that app has a feature, a chat feature, that while we're on the air, you can send me questions, you can send me how you're enjoying this subject, and I'm going to read them on the air. That's right. Do that and be a blessing to someone. You never know that the unasked question is only is the only uh, what they call dumb question. That's right, the question that you don't ask. But every question, every concern, we want to make sure that if we know how, we will address it right here on the Culture Call. I definitely, definitely want to hear from you. So do me a favor this morning. Sit back and relax. Grab you some coffee. Maxwell House or Starbucks, you know how we do it here in the Culture Call. Yeah, get you some tea, some herbal tea, whether it's camel meal because you're trying to calm down or whether it's some green tea because you're trying to perk up right or get you some alkaline water detox your body get down to that cellular level and let's get into the culture Listen, I want to say thank you to all of you who have been telling me about the conversation we had on yesterday about the significance of HBCUs, uh, the relevance in their resources. I really, really appreciate that. Uh, Those of you who have graduated uh, from HBCUs, those of you who have children, uh, those of you who just generally support HBCUs, you got kids there, you pay tuition there, you're watching them walk across the stage one day if they've not done so already. Thank you so much for letting me know that you appreciate the spotlight that we are bringing to our, our, our one of our treasures in the black community, which is our historically black colleges and universities. I think that is so very important. And as I said on yesterday, we were going to continue today. Uh, and uh, I believe I got a special guest going to coming on from Stillman College today. Uh, we're going to have a little chat about, you know, what's really going on there and the state of HBCUs and what we can do together as a community to improve it. But yeah, uh, Alabama is the leader, that's right, is the number one and the most HBCUs in the country. Can you believe it? That's right, Alabama with 14, wow, 14 HBCUs in the state of Alabama. And so that really makes us in this this state significant to the overall uh, uh, forward motion, the overall comprehension, uh, and the overall, you know, promotion of our HBCUs. I think it's very important. I think Georgia is next, maybe. I think so. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I think it is Georgia that's next. But nonetheless, uh, HBCUs are historical, uh, historically black colleges and universities that are primarily in the South. They don't just, they're not just in the South. You do have 
uh, Cheney, you have Wilberforce, you do have uh, uh, Langston, and that's mostly in up north or the Midwest. Uh, you have those schools as well. Uh, and so definitely, definitely we are grateful uh, to every HBCU all around the country that are yet producing, that are yet producing high-quality, uh, uh, intelligent uh, academically aware and socially, socially, uh, 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 socially prowessed. That's what I want to say. Are uh, people who come and do great work in our world that looks like you and I? Absolutely. That HBCUs uh, literally produce some of the most uh, profound genius thinkers in the entire country. And although you may not hear about that, you might hear about their where they got their master's degree or their doctorate, uh, and they might say what school, especially their HBCU, uh, as a byline or something else, a sideline or footnote or endnote. But the reality is, is that a lot of our African-American leaders uh, have graduated from HBCUs. Our doctors, lawyers, engineers have graduated uh, from, from the black colleges and universities. And I think that we need to shine a light on that specifically in this country because of all of the, uh, the, the yet racial tensions that exist um, publicly in policy and even in persona that's going on in our country, uh, I think it is very important that we begin to elevate, yes, elevate awareness of the amazing things, the awesome things that HBCUs are doing all around the country and not only bring it to the awareness but also offer and connect our young people to the available things the available scholarships the available funding uh, that is necessary uh that you know because school costs yeah unless they get a scholarship yeah but we need our best and our brightest today uh, to be a part of that HBCU community so that we can continue to thrive and make a name in this postmodern generation. I think that is very important. You know, I was reading on Instagram today and uh, this 16-year-old uh, genius, you know, uh, black boy was uh, had an opportunity to go to Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all that. And he chose an HBCU to attend. And shout out number one to his parents, because I think that was also good parent parental direction, because when you're that young, you know, I think he's about, yeah, 16. Uh, I, when he's that young, you need to be around people who understand your community, understand your background, uh, understand how to protect you and how to nurture what is inside of you, not just as an intelligent individual, but as an African-American, a black intelligent individual, because that's different in America. That, that's different, right? Normally, you go to college when you're, you know, 17 or 18 or maybe a year later, 19, and you've got a little, you know, a little gravitas, a little maturity under your belt uh, in that regard. Uh, but this young man is going on, and when he should really be in, what, middle school, maybe his freshman year in high school, and now he's going to be stepping on a college campus. And the last thing that we need as a community is for him to step on a campus that does not understand who he is as an individual, as a person. What is this, uh, the significance of him, number one, as a black boy stepping on and stepping into the realm of higher education. But number two, we also need to be able to foster and, and get to, uh, to train him in what the challenges will be as he grows up as a black man 
in this particular country. And I think that there is no better place to have that done than on the campus of an HBCU. And uh, we talked a little bit about it yesterday, about how HBCUs have been so centrally significant in shaping and reshaping and reshaping, and then sometimes shaping and reshaping again, over and over again, the culture of the country. Social activism, uh, social justice, you know, is very prime on the uh, HBCU campus, uh, dealing with uh, uh, situations of div uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion is heavy on HBCU campus uh, campuses, opening up the minds of generations to, you know, the possibility of others, uh, and, and what they struggle with, not just black people, but how to to stand in in solidarity, in unity with those who struggle all over the world. You know, when I was in college, the big thing uh, that we dealt with was uh, Nelson Mandela and uh, uh, South Africa and apartheid. And we had, you know, on campus and, you know, we dealt with marches and all of those different kinds of things, boycotting certain companies that were still uh, supporting uh, his imprisonment and apartheid in that country. Um that was one of the things, and then I can remember another time uh, we were on campus protesting the uh, uh, the the war in Iraq. Yeah, and and you know, in all of those different kinds of things, the Gulf War. That's right, the Gulf War. That's what it was. The Gulf War and all of that. Literally, I, I was on the marching band field and saw. You know, they called us to attention and literally the army, the military came to ROTP, ROTC people. That's it, ROTC. Y'all know what that is. Military at high school and college. They came and literally called the guys out and told them, hey, let's get ready. We got to go. We may have to go to war. And so, yeah, we protested that because on the HBC camp, HBCU campus, you don't just ignore what's happening in the world, that those things that are significant and a lot of, uh, of uh, you know, the problem that we had at that time um, in terms of talking about reshaping and addressing certain social issues is that a lot of the black men and women were paying for school uh, with ROTC, with uh, the the GI Bill, and they that's not what they signed up for. You know, a lot of them were in the Army Reserves, and they were able to go to school because at that time it was peacetime. And so, you know, for them to have to be interrupted in their education, uh, a lot of them, you know, we's like, wait a minute, hold on. You know, this war really doesn't even have anything to do with you know us and how it's going to position black and brown people and minorities in the country. And yet, they had signed an oath to be a part of that in the in the event that the United States went to war. And so we, you know, we protested, we fussed, we did all that we could because we didn't want to see that happen. We just did not want to see that happen. And so it's very important to understand that not only does the HBCU, uh, you know, deal academically, and I, and I say this, you know, um, with, with with expressed intention in my heart, not only do we create geniuses in terms of books and instruction and that kind of facilitation, we also have a big voice in what happens in the world today. And, you know, I thought it would be apropos to really talk about that in this season. Why? Because we're, we're in homecoming season. You know, everybody's going to homecoming. That means alumni. We are going back to the college campus and we're seeing the changes. We're seeing the changes in demographics. We're seeing the changes in interest. Yeah. 
Uh, we're seeing the difference in not just the lawn or the campus of the university or college that we attended, but we're also seeing the difference uh, uh, differences in the kind of student is that that's that's there that's attending now. And, uh, you know, we've got to begin to support with our mentorship and our money. Uh, we've got to begin to let the, you know, the, the staff and the faculty, the presidents and all of them know that, yes, we graduated from these illustrious universities and colleges and uh, they, you shaped us in who we are today and our thinking, the way that we move uh, in the earth. You help shape that. And so it is only right that we, as an extension, as a branch or branches, if I can say that, of the HBCU give back to make sure that our students do not struggle, to offer mentorship and leadership, uh, to, to begin to create jobs where we're in positions to do so, right? Um, that we create internships for uh, students who need exposure to the job market, right? That we do all that we can do as alumni of, of these particular colleges and universities to make sure that they thrive, that they do have access, that they do have the needed and necessary resources uh, that they can compete in a competing world, right? I mean, that they can, uh, at the HBCU, they will not be last, late, or lost in anything simply because they did not go uh, to a to predominantly white institution that, yes, um, even in athletics and in sports, that we can provide opportunities for those guys and those girls who want to be a part of, of athletics on a professional level. Yes, we as the alumni see to it uh, that we encourage uh, connections and businesses and corporations to, to undergird, undergird the idea that, yes, there is still relevance at the HBCU level, but there were a lot of times we lack the resources. And so definitely, definitely, that's exactly what we need to do. One of the things that I really want to talk about today from the resource and relevance perspective is what kind of student, what kind of students are we producing as currently on the HBCU campus? And, you know, later today, I hope to talk to uh, the dean of students from Stillman College, uh, Xavier Jackson, just to talk about what kind of students are they prepared to be in college? Because we had uh, maybe about a decade ago some difficulty um, uh, getting qualified students uh, to be a part of our HBCUs. Now, let me tell you why that's a problem. Because uh, the states fund uh, the, those colleges and universities based upon their achievement and, and how they are, the rate of that achievement, how, how uh, powerful and how successful, can I say that, the level of advancement and, you know, moving forward and matriculation of all the college students. Well, one of the missions of the uh, historical black colleges and universities is to give those students who may not make, who may not have made the mark uh, to go to other universities via the standardized testing, the SAT, the PSAT, the ACT. Yeah, they were able to get into regular college. HBCUs will allow them to come and be a part of the uh, culture of the HBCU and, and, you know, put them in some remediation, some slower classes, some things that they should have perhaps learned in, uh, in, in high school. Yeah. And what that what we found out that the states were like, okay, well, 
yeah, but you don't, these students are not even in their major. They can't, they're not even, you know, they're still doing work that they should have done in high school. And HBCUs were a lot of times penalized in terms of funding. And so HBCUs had to kind of change their metric and their matrix to be able to say, okay, well, we got to cut off some of this or the standard to get into the HBCU had to be higher. They they had to have a, a higher standard of, a, of scoring in the ACT and the SAT. Um, that's why we tell you to start young and, and sophomore, freshman, sophomore, start letting them take the test and start letting them go to classes so that they'll know how to navigate that test. Um, yeah. And so, you know, they had to raise up the GPA average of those who got in. They had to raise up who, you know, the level of, you know, um, of those who could get the scholarships, the full pay scholarships. I know when I was in school, you know, they had various levels of scholarships that they could get. And um, fortunately, I was able to get one at Florida A&M, you know, uh, and, and start in, in my major, right? Even though I went to a rural school, I didn't go to some of the, my classmates were from Chicago and Detroit and New York, California, and I was, you know, I graduated from a rural school in South Carolina, um, but I got a scholarship anyway. And I had to work very hard to make sure that I could compete. And and so, you know, they had to raise the standards. And, and because of that, it caused a little bit of angst. Why? Uh, because a lot of people are like, well, we're going, we're getting away from the mission of the HBCU, which is to give, you know, students a chance. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, and it was good, you know, it was good. And then it, it, then it wasn't so good on the state level. And those students are those schools that were supported by state funding. And so, yeah, a lot of HBCUs had to change, again, their standards of how they allowed, who they allowed and just how they allowed students to come in, you know. And, you know, a lot of them did not want to do it. And that was very, what was that, probably a couple of years after I graduated, uh, maybe about 95, 96, 97, they had to change that so that they could get, you know, merit scholars. Our school was number one in national merit scholars uh, in the country at the time. So, uh, you know, we didn't have to deal so much with that. But then the state legislature in Florida is predominantly, you know, was predominantly uh, Republican at the time. And so, yeah, that you, and you know how that goes, right? And so what we're finding and what we found then was that we needed to partner with earlier uh, with high schools and middle schools as HBCUs and helping them achieve certain rates and certain levels of, of academic understanding, academic uh, uh, success so that they could, yes, on the first time uh, enter into the HBCU system or the collegiate system, shall I say that, no matter if they went to HBCUs or not, or not, but HBCUs were, of course, using that as a funnel. And so, you know, one of the things that deeply concerned me is, you know, the students that we have today that are in high school and middle school, are they really being introduced formally to the HBCU system? in their states, right? Uh, your teacher might have went to an HBCU, or the principal might have went, you know, the band director might have went to an HBCU, but I'm talking about the connection between uh, the, the HBCU system and the high schools. Is there a connection that, you know, a funnel? Is there, are, are HBCUs participating amply in the college fairs? 
Um, are they are they offering scholarships? Are they identifying students? Students? Are they tracking them? You know, kind of like how athletics does that they see a brilliant student in their freshman, their sophomore year, and they begin tracking them from that. You know, so that when they get to you know to that college level, that they can recruit that student at that particular college. Are we doing that? at HBCUs. Um, I think that's very important because a lot of times I believe tremendous talent and possibility slips through the hands of our black colleges and universities because of our either lack of engagement on the high school level or, you know, which, which causes a lack of awareness. And they think that, hey, I don't even know, you know, that, that this was available to me. I didn't even know I could go to an HBCU. I didn't even know that, you know, this was offered to me. And you would be surprised. See, I, I think we make a, a very bad uh, assumption in the black community that we think that every black child has been exposed to an HBCU. And I'm going to tell you, no, absolutely not. And that's for various levels and the various ranges of, you know, of that. You know, when we talk about it, either their parents have a particular aversion uh, against HBCUs because it's so many black people and we don't like, you know, how they run their business and blah, blah, blah. They could have, you know, uh, those things like that go on. And so, you know, some black parents will say, well, my child will never go to HBCU because they are limited. I mean, I've seen it all. Or they've been in a predominantly private school, a, a white school, where they've not had any kind of exposure to uh, black culture and those things. And, you know, they, they just don't know. They have no interest. You know, it's, it's it was just, you know, I know when I was in school and met people from FSU, you know, Florida State, they were like, I, we didn't even know that this was available, that it was their first time, you know, because if you know anything about geography in Tallahassee, and even though I know this is Alabama, it, it's, it's just, they, right across the tracks, it's like a, a track where that separates Florida State from Florida A&M, and you would meet black people that went to Florida State, and you'd be like, oh, we didn't even know that that was over there. And they would be at our school for most of our games, most of our dances, you know, most of the shows and all of that. They got immersed in that culture, you know, in the black culture there, you know. Um, and, and, you know, just like the dichotomy and the dynamic here is in Tuscaloosa, that, yes, you have Stillman College, but then you have the behemoth of University of Alabama. And I want to call it behemoth because it is so huge. It is so large. And then you have Stillman College. And so, you know, it, some, some students that go to uh, 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 UA, like, mm, I don't even know about uh, HBCU. I didn't even know it was possible. You know, you, you'd be surprised at how people just do not know. We talked about it yesterday. They don't know about uh, HBCU. They have no awareness um, beyond the particular lack of exposure. There's a particular aversion because sometimes graduates from HBCUs talk so very bad about HBCUs, talking about the financial aid line, and I get it, you know, talk about the cafeteria, talk about the dorms, and, you know, and then we'll come to homecoming, and we're like, yo, go this go to this school, go Hornets, go go Tigers, go Rattlers, and we'll, we'll push it up during homecoming, but when we get into regular space, we'll talk so down about it, right? And then, you know, normally what I ask people that speak adversely about HBCUs who attended HBU at HBCUs and graduated from the school, what are you doing with your money? Are any of your dollars going to, or alumni dollars going to any kind of fund uh, providing any kind of scholarship 
to the university. Man, I gave them enough money when I was in school, right? And here's the truth. Our counterparts do not have that idea. They do not have that idea. Absolutely. That I gave them enough when I went there. I'm still paying student loans and I'm still doing that. Yeah, I get it. I understood it. I understand it. But yeah, is your plan that after you finish paying student loans, will you then support your HBCU? You know, because they got to have that, that whole idea of exposure uh, and that exposure has to understand that when you market it and you push it, that yes, HBCUs have expenses. And we already talked about how states underfund HBCUs. So some of our conversation and our dialogue and our language that's anti-HBCU has to change within our community. Yeah, has to change within our community. We cannot allow our own mouths to destroy the things and the bridges that brought us over. And HBCUs are definitely one of those bridges. And so, yeah, today we're going to just talk about what we can do to fortify and help students become more aware, connected, and attend HBCUs. Right. Listen, this is the Culture Call with yours truly, Elspeth Smith, right here on Praise 93.3 FM. Got so much to do with this show today. I don't want you to miss a solitary thing. Keep it right here. We are back right here on the Culture Call with yours truly, L. Spencer Smith on Praise 93.3. And we are having a fabulous day on this morning. Absolutely. Listen, we're in a tremendous conversation about the significance of HBCUs, their relevance and resources, and what we can do to connect more of our young people and provide an avenue to... Yeah, attend HBCUs. And as we said in our last segment, I've got a friend that's going to come on a little later in the show uh, from the Stillman College, the Dean of Students, Xavier Jackson. We're going to be talking a little bit about student engagement, how we can, as the community partner with uh, HBCUs, Stillman in particular, uh, since it's right here in town, but HBCUs wherever you are, and how we can provide a pathway for that connection. I believe 1,000% in HBCUs. I am a card-carrying HBCU fan. Yes, that's right. You can keep your argument. I've got the evidence that HBCUs produce significant uh, leadership. They produce amazing, awesome people, and I would not trade it for the world. Absolutely. Listen, and so uh, we've been talking about this whole idea of how we can create pathways for our young people to really understand and assess, assess the benefit of what it means to be a part of the HBCU culture. And I still believe, I still believe uh, that HBCU culture and awareness is still shaping the American social and cultural demographic uh, that we experience today. You know that it is, I think, the, a different world started or started in that 19, the late 1980s, mid to late 1980s, and it is still showing twice a day today, at least on TV One. You know, because, and I, I, I sit there and I watch it and I relive my own college experience and I am glad and grateful, as I told you yesterday, that all of my kids, they went to an HBCU. My wife and I, we graduated from HBCUs. Our parents were part of HBCUs. I mean, it, and, and 
I mean, and we are some amazing people. <laughs> I've got some of the most brilliant children on the face of the planet. I believe it. Yeah. Uh, my, my daughter, uh, she attended Spelman College. And, you know, it, you know, Spelman was difficult to get back in in, that, in those days. And it's still one of the hardest schools to get into now. Um, and I remember when that light blue, <laughs> that light blue envelope came in the mail. I mean, it was a day in the Smith household. We were so super proud of her. But the way that that happened was my dad. My dad told her, you know, I, I, she, and my daughter wanted to go to uh, FAMU. As a matter of fact, my, my daughter and my son, they both wanted to go to FAMU. And um, where their parents went. And my dad said, yeah, I know that. But you all need, my grandkids need to go to Spelman and Morehouse. And doggone it, <laughs> my son got into Morehouse, man. That was a trip and a journey there and just did amazingly well there. Uh, graduating magna cum laude. Yeah, I mean, my daughter was amazing at Spelman. And then my baby son, he went to Troy, started off at Troy. And we looked like, okay, you? Okay. <laughs> because if there's any, if I could say, if there's any Black Panther in the family, it would be my baby son. So him going to Troy was really funny. But... Yeah, we knew what was going to happen. It didn't work out, and he transferred to Florida A&M, and he graduated uh, a few years ago. So, yes, I mean, and what my prayer is that even the extended generations of our family would attend HBCUs because I'm telling you, I am telling you, don't listen to the people that might have gripes. And yes, yes, all of us, I had to stand in the line at the financial aid office. And yes, I did indeed have to wait a while to get my refund check. <laughs> I did. I really, really did. Um, uh, but the experience, the experience was just amazing. I tell you what, those processes, you know, um, even currently now, I'm in in school now, uh, getting another degree at an HBCU. I'm at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor uh, School of Theology in Virginia Union University. And one of the things that our dean tells us is trust the process. And yes, an HBCU is a process. If you think, <laughs> let me go ahead and tell you right now. If you think that... Uh, that it's easy matriculating through an HBCU like it's high school part two, you are sadly mistaken. That the level of, 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 of challenge and intensity and academic pressure on the HBCU campus differs nothing. It comes in second to no other place, no other uh, institution of higher learning, uh, you know, anywhere in the country or in the world that... HBCUs have the same academic rigor, even sometimes more. And then the professors there, because most of them are, are black, uh, they understand the particular uh, atmosphere and the particular environment um, that, that our children are going to have to face when they graduate. They understand because they've faced it themselves. And I think that once, once you connect them, uh, connect to an HBCU or child does anyway, it, they start producing from day one a family, a family. And I'm just, just talking about people that hang out in your dorm rooms. No, I mean, we went to each other's houses on the weekend, spent the night. We, you know, you know, met, met other moms, met other dads, you know, got aunties and uncles and all of that. We, it, we That was the only way that we were, well, one of the ways that we survived. <laughs> Absolutely. 
that uh, HBCU process. And if your child is entitled, then now you might not, yeah, you might not send them to an HBCU because one of the things that HBCUs do, do is they level the playing field. We are all, you know, we are all black and we are all whatever the mascot is. <laughs> but if you come to school with a silver spoon in your mouth or your child is used to you doing everything for them, they will have a very, very rude awakening when they attend an HBCU, comma, and that is a good thing. Yes, that's right. Because HBCUs, HBCUs turn your black youth into black adults. That's right. That yes, making them wait, making them understand. And I'm I'm not saying that you know that there are not things that HBCUs can uh, should work on. And guess what? What you find out is that that it's everywhere. You know, whether it's a PWI or a black college and university, they have to work out some things in administration and systems and all of those different kinds of things. Um, it's just that other schools have a greater level of access to resources that causes them to move a little bit quicker in advancement. But the truth of the matter is it happens to all of all schools. Right. So, yeah. Um, and and one of the things that we really need to understand as the black community is that especially in this environment, in this uh, uh, this post MAGA, post Trumpian environment, and I'm going to say post as a as a prophetic right because we know that we are still kind of mired into that 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 in inclusion and not having to fight for your identity and fight for your worth and fight microaggressions and fight you know you know this do i belong where do i belong you know do i belong on this campus you know you don't want to, your child doesn't want to have to deal with the whole idea of did you get in legitimately did you get in because you are really uh academically intelligent because you measured that in terms of that or are you just an add-on because you are black you, you know that's a country that's in this country right now we have to face that we've got to look at that in the face and you've got to start asking yourself do I want my child to go through that? And if you do not, you need to begin, yes, check out the HBCUs. Because immediately when that child comes on that campus, they're going to be filled with people that look like them. That people in which they belong. And people and, and leaders and teachers and professors that will get them to understand the full, under, uh, the full element of who they are culturally, um, anthropologically, um, who they are as black people in America. And uh, you can't, you can't, you know, deny that. They're going to see, yes, the divine nine. They're going to see the AKAs and the alphas, the kappas and the uh, omegas, the zetas and the sigmas. They're going to, they're going to see the iotas and, and sigma gamma rho. They're going to see all of that into play. They're going to see all of that. They're going to be immersed in the culture of, you know, the HBCU uh, yard, if you will, right? Um, I think one of the things that shows a wonderful HBCU yard is um, Stump the Yard. I think that is an amazing movie that kind of gives you that dynamic. Uh, it gives you that kind of, it shows you the maturity. It shows you the the diversity that's available at the HBC, HBCU. It shows you the entertainment <laughs> a factor on the campus. Uh, Drumline was another one of those, you know, um, 
and that movie was loosely based off of our band, um, the Family Marching 100. And, you know, you get to see the culture, the marching band culture, the music that they can identify with. Yeah, uh, all of that, um, that, that you get that whole understanding. I saw this morning when I was uh, preparing to come to the show, you know, uh, a different world. I think this morning, Freddie had just found uh, at, at Hillman a place in underneath their, you know, foundation or in one of the walls, a place that had the underground railroad that came through the university going up for the slave, the enslaved going up north. And it was a, it was a big feature there. You know, it was all of that, all of that immersion that our young people can have if we would begin to understand what is the power and the significant advantage of attending an HBCU. And again, I know I would have some to push back on me and say, well, you know, uh, well, we got a black student union at this PWI. And, you know, yeah, you know, that that argument has been in existence since um, since, since I've been in college. And I'm sure probably some of you are older than me uh, has been in your your, your experience as well. Um, and I get it. And I applaud you for BC, uh, a BC, a black student union at a, P, uh, a PWI, and I applaud you getting together and sticking together as a black people, but there is a reason. There is no black student union at an HBCU. There is simply students. <laughs> there is no, there is no a cultural signification there, right? There are simply students, right? We just have a student government. We don't, there is no need to carve out a niche and to try to replicate uh, or, or try to to import, if I can say it like that, uh, the black culture, on because you don't see it on campus. It's not primarily represented. It is not primarily uh, defended. It is not you know inherent to that cultural space at another school, right? So you have to create this kind of thing to feel like you have a particular you know cosmology that is uh, uh familiar with you and understands what it means to be that well that that's not you don't have to do that at an HBCU right yeah you can experience diversity you can experience all of that without feeling the a level of racialized animus uh, that you know sometimes happens when you don't go to an HBCU right but again I'm not casting any kind of aspersions i'm telling you the reality and that's what we do here at the culture call family you know i'm gonna tell you what it is and that's that's one of the struggles that when a lot of our, our black students go to other schools and universities they feel that you know this we are you know we are the minority here we so we need to create this and we need to create that right we need to xyz and abc you know we need to carve, carve out a space in this overwhelming uh, niche of, of majority, we need to carve out something that minorities can thrive and see a reflection of themselves on this campus. And what I'm saying to you uh, is that is not done. It's not necessary at an HBCU. It's not. Because again, most of the people look like you. Uh, absolutely. Most of the people look like you. And, you know, one of the things that uh, that's so very fascinating is a lot of the mislabeling, the misnomers, the misinterpretation, the misidea, the mischaracterizations of HBCU culture um, in this country uh, is, is a lot of times that it is inferior and it is not. 
It is not at all. I'm telling you right now that enrollment is increasing. And one of the reasons why enrollment is increasing and uh, is this, is that um, the current climate, uh, students are understanding, yeah, I need to be in a safe space. I need to be in a space where the people look like me, where the people understand my demographic, my, the people understand my parents, the people understand my community, the people understand my struggle in the world, in the context of the world, that they're not just trying to academically educate me, but they're also socially and culturally and interpersonally invested in the life I will live beyond this campus. And I think that's important. I think that is valuable for our students who are now going to school where there is no uh, African-American history taught, black history taught. Uh, they're stripping the school systems and, you know, out of those courses, away from those courses. They're getting rid of that in the name of, you know, getting rid of wokeism. Oh, my God. <laughs> getting away of all those other things. I Yeah, that part. You see, and and so we, we, we they're, they're coming home, if we can say it like that, they're coming home to HBCUs, right? And yet, and yet we still have a lot of work to do. And that coming home, that we need to get them to understand what does coming home look like? Um, what does that being a part of this community look like? You know, one of the things about HBCUs We'll talk about each other. It's just like family. We'll talk about each other, but you who have not gone to an HBCU, you can't talk about us. Absolutely. That. Bethune-Cookman and Florida A&M can talk about each other. Florida Memorial can talk about us. Edward Waters, we can talk about each other, right? But don't come from Florida State or University of Miami trying to talk noise. No, no. Because even though they did not come go to our particular institutions, we understand that HBCU is family. And that's all across the country. And that's no matter where you go. You're right. That I am, I am as welcome at Tuskegee. I'm as welcome at, uh, at, at Alabama State, Alabama A&M, as I, was, as I am any place. As I am any place. Because we understand what it means to be a part of an HBCU. Absolutely. We know about each other. We care about each other. Now, we're going to jank on each other because we're in the midst of football season right now. <laughs> Let me tell you a thing of 12. We are in, listen, listen, and, you know, we're going to talk smack. We're going to get in our chat rooms. We're going to do that. But at the end of the day, we are all family. And I think that is, that is something different. That is something different about the whole HBCU culture because no matter what the title of your school is, we all have to live as black Americans in this country. And we all have to navigate, no matter where we graduated from, what halls we matriculated through, we all have the same kind of pressure when we leave those halls. So we've got to be family. Definitely, definitely, definitely. And so we want our children and our grandchildren to be a part of that family as well. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're pushing that, we're promoting that, and we're uh, saying long live HBCUs because they are so necessary in the world in which we live, just as necessary as when they were founded uh, back in the 1800s, some as late as the 1900s, you know. So we are, we are, we are still promoting that. Listen, 
Give me a call, 205-752-4800, or hit me up on the app. Let me know what you think about the show. This is The Coach Call with yours truly, L. Spencer Smith, right here on Praise 93.3. Got much more to come. Uh, don't miss it. This is the world back right here on the culture call with yours truly Elspeth Smith praise 93.3 it's the top of the hour that's right 11 a.m and some change and we are having an amazing day today and I pray yeah if you're just joining us guess what we have had already a wonderful first hour of the culture call but listen you caught us at the right time and because we've got more conversation we've been talking about HBCUs and there's the significance of the HBCU community and culture uh, to America, their relevance and their resources. And uh, it's a connected uh, conversation that we had from yesterday. I think it's so very important uh, that as the black community, we begin to uh, foster a sense of, of worth for what I call one of the significant bridges that have brought us over in this country, and that is the historical black college and uh, universities. And I, you know, I shout out to all of them that, you know, do the work that they need to do, all 107 of them, and the 14 right here in the state of Alabama. Again, I, I did not have the, uh, the fortunate uh, opportunity to go to an HBCU in Alabama, but I did go to one, one of the best, Florida A&M University, and I am so excited to be a part of the HBCU uh, family and community. Listen, I always want to remind you that you can call in 205-752-4800 and definitely you can hit me up on the app and hit, uh, let me know what you think about the show. Uh, those of you who have been hitting me up afterwards saying, hey, I listened to the broadcast and man, thank you for talking about HBCUs. Thank you for talking about all of the subjects. I am super, super pleased and super proud. But listen, I've got uh, the guest today. I told you on our first half that we were going to have uh, an amazing guy to come sit in with us. He is the Dean of Student Life at the illustrious Stillman College right here in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, Mr. Xavier Jackson, and we're going to be, he's going to be, he's going to be Dr. Xavier Jackson really soon, but I am grateful and glad to have him on with me uh, just to kind of talk about, you know, HBCUs. He is responsible for making sure uh, the student life uh, and activities on the campus of of Stillman College is flourishing, is student inviting, student healthy. It causes them to understand, you know, not just their place in uh, the on the HBCU campus, but also their place in the world. And uh, he is significant in connecting, you know, the university, the college with uh, churches and community, you know, being a bridge to help students understand that life, there is more life than just on this campus. And he is doing an amazing and tremendous job there. I believe it's his first year in this job, uh, but he is making here an impact on that campus like none other. Y'all help me welcome uh, Mr. Xavier Jackson. What's happening, Zay? What's going on? <laughs> What's happening? Zay? I'm glad that you are here, man. I'm glad that you're here. And, you know, uh, to help me talk about this significant subject. We've been talking about HBCUs for the last couple of days, but kind of just let them know what you do there as Dean of Student Life on Stillman Campus. So currently as the Dean of Student Life, it is my responsibility to uh, foster a sense of community and family for the student body mm -hmm. to make sure that, <clears throat> excuse me, to make sure that they are well engaged as well 
And as they matriculate through campus, that they continue to not only stay engaged and involved, but they get the development that they need as leaders moving forward throughout the entire their college career. Yeah, that's good. Because I think when, when students come from out of high school, that might be something that they don't have. That, you know, that whole idea of how do I develop these leadership skills and these community connective skills to help me thrive um, in life. And so I think one of the important things, I think, is they have a you. They have you there to kind of help bridge that gap between, okay, you got four years to develop this and get this connection and then move out into this. What gave you this desire um, to kind of work with students in this way, to engage them in this way? Um, in this role, it's, it's very funny how I got into the role, mm -hmm. but, and I say funny as in hilarious because it was all God. Yeah. So I'm able to relate because I have been a student. Yeah. I've been a student for many years, but I'm also very young as well too. Right. I think I might be the youngest, the second youngest Dean that Stillman has had. Wow. Wow. And I've had some conversations with other people that I might just be the youngest Dean in the state. Right if not the country, because I'm in my 30s, early oh, 30s. Yeah. So um, it's something that's been very important to me because I realize as our generations are moving into uh, this stages of their life that they don't always know how to articulate what they need, what they want, yeah. the type of development that they're seeking, but they do know, some know where they want to go, right. others may not. Right. I spent time on both sides of that, not knowing what I wanted to do, but also knowing what I wanted to do. Right, right. Not having the development for that. So right. I think it's it was very clever of God to bring this opportunity to me because I never sought out for higher education. Right. I just ended up being one of those people that was well-rounded and always received well by people in, in higher administration right. that always wanted my opinion. Yeah. And... It was one of those moments where I prayed and I said, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because I'm tired and yeah. I'm ready to go. <laughs> and I got a call um, from Dr. Warwick's office, the former um, president, and she asked me to consider the role. And it's been great to serve um, now under our eighth president, Dr. Yelena Page, mm -hmm. who has been incredible about wanting a fostered uh, sense of family, of home, right, of right pride right. and that's something we kind of have been missing yeah so we want that more so in the campus so you came out one day yeah um, on campus where um i was with the students we yeah. grilled yeah uh we had all kinds of food we wanted it to be like home so there were ribs there were burgers there was and it was mac and cheese <laughs> uh twice baked mashed potatoes it was the only thing i was upset that i didn't get to do was my greens i wanted to do oh my, my greens, God. but there were no greens <laughs> Um, but the students were so excited about it. The yeah. campus was very thriving. There was music. That's what we want yeah. on a daily basis. Yeah. I think what we have kind of gotten away from is what that culture looks like, yeah. especially there is that nuance of the duality of being an HBCU and a Presbyterian institution. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And that is a challenge that we're seeing now. How do we meld the two together. Yeah. What do yeah. we do? How can we make sure that the culture is fostered the way that we want to see it, but it's fostered in a way that is well presented, well represented, and well received at the same time? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and I was out there. It was hot, too. <laughs> to add that. No, but I, I saw how you, how the students interacted with you and how you interacted with the students and the significance. And I think that is, as you say, divinely strategic 
because, you know, sometimes they put deans in those places that, that they're 50, 60, 70 mm -hmm. years old, but they're removed so far from the, the time demographic and the age demographic of the students that they can't relate. Agreed. And so what you, what you had out there in terms of, you know, doing with, for them and with them was something that they could see themselves, you know, it wasn't somebody, like, oh, why are these kids doing that? Why are they playing this music? Why are they wearing this? That mm -hmm. wasn't your posture. It was like, hey, come show up how you are. Be a part of the campus life. You know, be mature. Right. You know, and you can live in this space. You know, one of the things I always, uh, you know, when I when I go on college campuses, whether it's Stillman, you know, uh, Florida A&M or whatever HBCU that I'm on, I'm, I'm challenged uh, to look at the students in, ter in terms of how... How much are they getting? How much have they been influenced by the outside culture? Because this is an academic culture. Right. You know, how, how, how difficult it is to bridge those gaps, you know, and, you know, what is, that, what is the college and or university doing to help them understand that, yes, you do, you can have your culture and your age range, but this is, a, mm -hmm. a, a, you know, institution of higher learning. Mm -hmm. How are you bridging that gap? I think... And what you just said is come and be mature. We have to start in a posture of come immature. Oh, wow. Because if wow. we don't open that, that mindset in receiving them in an uh, immature state, we'll never be able to foster them into a mature state. Right. So in that level of maturation that we're looking at, we have to first meet them there. And then help them through the evolution, the evolution, mm -hmm. stay with them through the evolution yeah. of now you're where we're trying to get you. Right. Because to be honest, every student that we, we come in contact with, we might not see a finish line with them. Yeah. Because there are certain like anomalies that will come with it. They may transfer. They may stop out. They might not have enough aid. Yeah. They might not have the family support. Like those different things. So where you can start out in a level with them, whether they are already mature or if they are immature, you don't know which one, you know, like yeah. you don't know where the finish line will be. Yeah. So it's about first receiving them there and then moving with them. Yeah. And I think that for me has helped me understand for me yeah. specifically because when I was an undergrad, I, I made good grades. I was decent. But graduating not from an HBCU, from a PWI, right. um, the University of Alabama, uh -huh. the plus and minus system is very disrespectful <laughs> to anyone <laughs> academically. The B minuses, the A minuses, they did not help. I might as well have just had Cs. Right. So I did finish with a 2-6. Right. So that is not the, the most beautiful GPA to finish with, but I did finish. Right, right. And I did finish, you know, decent. Yep. However, when I got to the graduate level, I went not supported by people that were more indirect or more directly in my corner. Right. So moving to that space, they did. there was one who said, I'm not going to help you uh, apply for this institution. And my response to her respectfully was, I didn't ask you for your assistance. And I wasn't being rude, but that's right. something I know that God has also been working with me on is standing up for myself. Right. So this was now almost 10 years ago. It was 15, yeah. I think, 16. Uh -huh. um, we were talking, well, 16 going in 17, we were talking about it. And she was like, I'm not going to help you. That's fine. So then I moved, went to London, did the double masters there. Great. And I was well-received there. The things that I learned there was impeccable. And there they do a dissertation starting in your bachelor's yeah. at the bachelor's level. 
So I had to learn the learning curve yeah. of writing there that was so different. Believe it or not, both masters, I graduated at the top of my class. Right. Not the top, but I was in the top percentile. Right. So that's great because the first masters, it was magna cum laude. Yeah. Second masters was summa cum laude. Right. The second masters, that merit is what they call it. I can get into almost any institution over there and they pay for it. Right. But I said all of that to say when I got to 2-6, I was still immature, still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Yeah. I was a little bit older than the other students, but I still didn't know what specifically I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it. I just knew I wanted to do entertainment. Yeah. I just know I wanted to do dance. Like yeah. that was it. Yeah. So that was my focus. But again, higher ed, I was mentored by the dean of students there. Right. I had a relationship with an executive director who is now an AVP. I had like all these different relationships that I always stayed in close proximity in higher education. Right. And once I came back, and wow. well, before I left, I was also working at the University of Alabama. That's wow. So it was like that my journey there is what keeps me relative to the students and right. keep me in a posture of come immature because we can help you. And I love that process because, I mean, I don't, and I don't think as long as I've been dealing with higher education, I've never heard that come immature. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things they told us, you know, you got you to gotta grow up. You're going to come mature. And, right. and, and coming out of high school, you're trying to figure out, well, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, I'm living in my parents' house. They're paying for my food. I don't have any rent. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, I got a car in college. I didn't get a car in high school, right? right. And so all of the responsibilities, you know, my mama done woke me up to go to class. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They told me when it was time to eat. And I'm talking to my senior year. Right. And so I'm coming on this campus of, of thousands at Florida A and M, immature, you mm -hmm. know, and and but you're trying to act, you're trying to make it seem like you're not, but you you're so green mm -hmm. and so many areas. But I love that process that you just said that our students they need the ability to come immature because the campus, the students, everybody has to know. Well, not the students, but but the you know the faculty has to know these kids are not coming ready. Right. That they, they academically. Right. They're coming ready, right? Because they wouldn't have gotten in if they did. Well, some, not all. And that, right, right. We talked about that other other element, other uh, hour, and and then so they have to have a, a situation to where that helps them grow up in a mm -hmm. safe environment. Yes, and you know that's one of the things that I can say just by observation. As you know, with, on the campus with you, looking at how you deal with them, how you treat to, how you treat them, how you speak to them, mm -hmm. how you help them, you know, make their decisions, their own decisions, mm -hmm. to develop their own way of thinking. That's helping them mature. What are the what, what? Tell me, what do you think is one of the challenges on the you know the greatest challenges on the HBCU uh, for HBCUs connecting with Black youth today? What, what if you had to look at it from your perspective? What would it be? Is it is it that thing that we're not qualified enough or they don't have exposure to HBCUs? HBCUs are not doing enough in the community to make bring awareness. What would you say as the dean of student life is one of the barriers of connecting HBCUs to those potential students? One could definitely say it's all of those things. Mm -hmm. I would say two things. One, um, <clears throat> you taught this when I first got here, but you also spoke about it again at chapel. Right. Uh, as a hymn says, to serve a present age, my calling to fulfill. Right. Which leads into the second point of innovation. Yeah. And what we have not done very well just yet is 
coming to that that posture of to serve a present age, my calling to fulfill as a institution, as a corporation, as a business. That's yeah. what we're here for. Yeah. This is what we do. You're the customer. So how do we reach this present age, which means how do we innovate? to yeah. reach this present age. Right. How does the resources that we bring in to aid this customer base, how do we make sure that it is a, it's in an innovative way that it helps us on the back end right. for the backlog, the back channels of things, but then how do we make sure that it is front-facing or forward-facing and it brings all the nutrients and vitamins and vitality to the right. students that we need it to have. Right, right. How do we continuously ask questions of what we have in present that may be of days of old? How do we innovate that to make sure that it does provide what we're looking for? Right. So does that mean we create more hybrid roles? Uh -huh. Do we have people within the enrollment that are also working with uh, student life? Or are they in enrollment also working with uh, well, I guess it is still student life within residential life. Right. So we can help with the understanding what the campus culture needs, understanding what different pieces. I think if we had with the right structure, very strategic structure, mm -hmm. I think more hybrid roles could potentially be an answer. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that it is the answer, but right. that could help some things because we do um, go into an international institution. One thing that I loved about being there. Uh, while I was there, I did learn that I did despise, I will say, is they talk, but they don't talk enough to the other departments. Right. So I remember knocking on the door one day saying, hey, um, I'm starting the second master's, but I can't go to my classes because you haven't done this part of my paperwork. And they, the lady says to me, uh, well, you're going to have to come back next year, ma'am. Excuse me. <laughs> I'm 4,000 plus miles away. Right, right. I'm living overseas and I've already moved in and I'm working two jobs on campus while managing another team mm -hmm. or, you know, department in another country. Right. What do you mean I have to go home? That's not feasible. That's not the answer. So we're going to figure this out today. Right. So that was great, but every student doesn't know how to do that. So I feel like at that point, I handled myself well, yes, but it's another piece of... How do we create those roles where they are talking to one another because they are synonymous with one another? Yeah, yeah. I think that was that was key and critical when I was at Florida and them. There was there was uh, probably a, a shadow of what you're talking about that you know their job was there is there is no student going to be left behind mm -hmm. and if they have difficulty you know, from the day you walk on this campus, come to me and whatever you need, we'll work it out. Yeah. It was never, oh, well, I'm sorry, we can't. No, mm -hmm. no, because, you know, they made every student feel like, you know, you're going to succeed here. You were smart enough to get in. Mm -hmm. And so our job, as you say, is to view you as not just a consumer, but but one of our children to say, hey, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah, you know, we, we need to definitely make sure that we do what we can do and pull the strings. Yes. You know, pull the strings. I think high school students believe that that only exists mm -hmm. at a PWI. Mm -hmm. That's what the, our, I'm talking about black students. That, right. They think that, oh, I'll get that at UA or I'll get that at FSU or I'll get that at a white, you know, all Because we see the resources. Right, because they see the resources, not even understanding that there is a Xavier Jackson there that mm -hmm. can be that kind of person. There is a Daphne Hood that's going to help you, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, what can we do better then as HBCUs to expose that element that 
to, to, no, to leave no child left behind, mm-hmm. to, to connect with these kids from high school all the way through however long it takes to matriculate through the university to college, what can we do better? I think a very sore spot mm-hmm. is starting within the internal network and yeah. relationships internally first mm-hmm. of how you have to look back at what is the culture like for the staff yeah. and the faculty that are uh, connecting with these students on a daily basis. Yeah. Because if they are coming to work feeling as if I really don't want to be here, I'm trying right. to figure out this next step, right. this right. is too sour, you know, when you meet Xavier, when he walks in the door, you might not want to help Xavier at that point. You might help Xavier to a little piece, but you wouldn't do the part that the full state, or uh, let's say the full stature of nurturing right. that is within you, you yeah. know, because you're you're dealing with other elements and other pieces of things that you don't necessarily want to deal with, but they are literally, uh, you can't compartmentalize at that point because it's taking over everything. Right. So I think where one would probably say, yeah, that might not be the answer. I think that is one of the first answers is finding out how to strengthen that relationship because what I have found out, again, going back to corporations, businesses, when you have a staff uh, or team that is excited about what they do, yeah, you'll always know that there's a Xavier, there's a Daphne Hill. You'll always know that there are these people that are at this institution doing this work because you won't even have to put them on the pedestal. The work that they do will not only speak for itself, but it will cause them to be in the forefront and in the light to be well represented and to be a better representative of your business or institution. Right, right. Because I think, you know, again, I've been both a recipient and both as a participant and an oral listener to some of the horror stories of dealing with staff and faculty at HBCU. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the negative things. I'm never going to, when I graduate, I'm never going to come back. I'm never going to come back. I'm never going to come back. It took me a while just to get some of the students at our church healed Mm -hmm. because they had such an interesting experience uh, at the HBC, on the HBCU level. And I think that that's very important um, that we begin to from an institutional level, there has to be some level of intimacy, some right. level of connection. First of all, number one, it ain't that many people where where we can be so disconnected. We, yes. You know what I'm saying? When you're dealing with 5,000, 7,000, 1,000, you know, and that kind of thing, we should be connected. You know, mm-hmm. my, my, my professor could call the dean's office and say, hey, I got Smith in here and I need to change a grade for him. And hey, I need you. All right, man, yo, I'll get it done. I'll, I'll get it done and I'll connect Smith. Just tell them to come over here and sign this paper. Right. You know, that's the level of friendship that they had that a yeah. professor could call the dean on the phone. But when you're having that institutional disconnect that, mm-hmm. you know, that's their department. I don't have anything to do with that. Then you don't feel a consistent level of help right. and assistance. And like you said, some of these students are coming to college. Th- th- their parents just simply drop them off. Mm-hmm. They don't have that family support. Right. So they don't have anybody to call if anything goes wrong. So it's left up to the college or the university to to kind of make those things those things happen. What are you currently doing now or what would you like to see done? I mean, let me, you know, just see how we can prognosticate on, on Stillman's campus that would better improve uh, student life to attract 
more students because, you know, more students, more funding, more funding, better facilities, better mm -hmm. opportunities, better programming, all of that. What are you hoping to see in the near future that Stillman employs to, you know, do on the campus to better connect this next generation of high school graduates? Being relative uh -huh. through relationship. Yeah. And I say relative through relationship because we're in the day, uh, we had the opportunity to go to the Revolt World Summit that they had, or World Conference uh, in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. It was great. They It was an HBCU bus tour that they did. It was um, Stillman College and Alabama State and uh, A&M, I want to say. It might have been one other school. But they sent buses to us to come, you know, and spend the day there. There was mental health things. There was um, not a college fair, but like a, a, a job fair. There was a lot of things. And then there were right. artists. One thing I thought was very unique was all of the speakers were not doctors or philosophers. They were artists, music artists. Yeah. The people that, uh, it was someone I, I sat in on his conversation and it was as if it was a TED talk. It was his very first one and he really enjoyed it, but mm -hmm. I could tell what it meant for him as well too. Sure. It was great because they got to see all these different things, but they got to see people that are more rel like relative to them mm -hmm. in these roles. Not that they all want to be singers, rappers, um, influencers. We do have a lot more students that are coming in that want to be influencers right. or that are already influencers. They're just also getting the degree as well. Mm -hmm. I think if we were able to get more students that or more representation for the students that look like where they want to go, mm -hmm. what they want to do, as we give them that, uh, what we're we're entitled to give them in terms of sure. putting the education in front of them, yeah, the people yeah. that come from those backgrounds, if we could put both of those in the same space, we could really produce a very well-rounded student that is able to get what they're looking for and what they need at the same time. Right. So right. that's something I have begun to do with the dance team, at least, because that's what I was doing solely right. before I became the dean of students. We created, because we don't have a dance major or minor, I created a pro or curated a program to where the dancers can come in and be a part of a professional dance team's yeah. program. Wow. So they're learning uh, liturgical, ballet, modern, jazz, contemporary, majorette, African. We're doing all styles. We don't stop it. Or, um, it and it's within well practice because my bachelor's and my master's, one of my master's is in dance. Right. So with the research that I've done and things like that, it's, I've been able to curate that while mm -hmm. they get the degrees that they yeah. have come to Stillman for. Yeah. So they get the best of both worlds, and they're also learning within the Dance Teams program how to be a part of the creative element behind it. One thing that I definitely despised as a dancer was, why am I only good enough to you to be the talent in front of the camera? Right. Why can't I be the person on the other side of it and paying people to do these things? Right. So we just did a video shoot on Saturday. I was the executive um, creative director and all that kind of stuff, but I pulled the dancers in also to learn that piece of it. Okay, so we can't do this. We had a scene we wanted to use pools for. Right. It's too cold. Can't use pools. Okay, so what can we do? Right. They said, okay, what about desks? Hmm, 
Okay, so in the shoot, we shot on top of the desk, but I also made sure there was that risk management piece in there where we had people that anchored the desk to make sure when they got on the dance, to, des to dance on the desk, that it was anchored down. Yeah. Great, cool. Now they have directing credits, they have choreography credits, they have wow. all these different credits to start their IMD, IMDB pages. Right. And that's what we're working on next for them. So that this way, when they leave here, they are not just a dancer with credits. They're a dancer with credits and a degree for whatever they want to do. Wow. My captain right now, she came in, she wanted to do, um, she wanted to be a dermatologist. Then yeah. she, she changed from that to do yeah, something else sure. within nursing. Then she changed from nursing to do, like she's changed, but this is a student with a, a three-point-plus GPA wow. that can choose to make these changes or whatever because she can always dance. I took her to London. She performed with the, some of the other dancers. They all perform there. That's great for her resume. But then she also has on this side, she is Dina's... Uh, not Dina's too. She's uh, um, Dean's List. She's yeah. done all these other things. She has all of these academic accolades. So now she can marry the two together, be the hybrid that no one has been looking for or no one has known that they needed right. and be exactly who she wants to be out in the world. Wow, wow, wow. Culture Call, we've got Dean Xavier Jackson from Stillman College, Dean of Student Life here, dropping some major science and all of the things in, uh, that's available right here on the campus of Stillman College, but at HBCUs, challenging all of us. And so, yeah, I need you to keep it right here. This is the Culture Call with yours truly, L. Spencer Smith. Listen, we're going to take a little break. I need you to stay right there. We've got more to come. Don't miss it. family right here on the culture call with yours truly Elspeth Smith and I've gotten here sitting with me the illustrious dean of students at Stillman College Mr. Xavier Jackson and I'm telling you he has been really enlightening us of not just what's going on on Stillman's campus on that student life side uh, but what should be happening at HBCUs to attract more students? And I am so glad and grateful of that he is here. You know, Xavier, I think one of the things that's very important that you, you know, that you intimated in the last segment was this whole idea of relativity and being able to relate. And, you know, one of the things back in the 80s, early 90s, that really connected me to, you know, to the desire of of going to an HBCU was a different world, you know, mm -hmm. and I, you know that whole idea. Of, I wanted to be on campus. I want first of all, I wanted to go to Stillman. Mm -hmm. I mean, to Hillman. I mm -hmm. wanted to go to Hillman College. I wanted to see Denise and and all these figures, you know, uh, and you know that kind of kept with me throughout my college career. You know, this idea that I'm a part of this big family and this big HBCU world, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's one of the things that affords. Um, that was afforded to me at that time. My question to you is, do you think that the students today are being affected by a different world because it's still on or being affected by a drumline or a stump the yard, those things that we grew up on that kind of gave us a different picture? You know, are they still being affected by that or is their desire to be a part of the HBCU culture different, something totally different now? I think it's both. Okay. Um, a different world... I still watch to this day. Yeah, it's definitely. one of my favorite things. <laughs> right. And actually, at homecoming, I want to say 20, 21 or 22, mm -hmm. um, we had uh, someone from Living Single and someone from A Different World. Wow. 
both come to campus, did the podcast and everything. It was great. And in speaking with her, I was like, oh, my God, this is one of my favorite shows. And uh, my favorite thing every time there is an audition is for, I forget the name of the character, but she gets up and she does the, um, when the saints go marching. And she always sing, but not up. Out, but in, yes, Gina. <laughs> Gina. Gina's audition is always it's it's iconic to me because she gets stuck on not out but in yes. in. But um, I do think it is. But we need more things like that. Okay. I see students um who wear a living singles <clears throat> not friends shirt. Yeah. Um, and just like even the movie that just came out, The Blackening, we we screened it on campus, and. The one of the things that made the crowd laugh was when they asked who were the five uh, black characters that were on Friends that were featured on Friends, and they go around and they're trying to answer the question in the movie, and then the answer is wrong because they have successfully named all five, but the answer was supposed to be I'm black. I watched Living Singles. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. And that was everyone's response in the audience was I'm black. I watched Living Single, although I watched both. Friends and living single. Right, right. I think that it's one of those things like drumline, like you mentioned, um, living single, um, stump the yard, stump the yard. All yeah. those they are literally culture classics for us. So they still watch those. We still talk about them. We were joking about how band student today reminds us of Miles because of his cornrows. Right, right. So it like everyone knew that and they thought it was funny. It's those things that I think are very important to the culture that we need more films, we need more TV shows, we need more things that um, within entertainment that represent the culture. But right now, most of the programming is not necessarily representative of HBCU culture. I know BET did have one called The Quad a couple years ago. Yeah, yeah. That was pretty good, but it's no longer airing. So... We don't have things like that. We do have some reality TV shows where you kind of see um, black millennials coming up that Issa Rae has done that's on HBO yeah. that they are trying to figure out what they want to do with life and they're doing businesses and things like that. But other than that, we don't have that representation depicted. So it's up to us on campuses to curate the culture that we want to see. Yeah. And I have thought of creating uh, a movie series where we showed all black films. Nothing right. but black films. And I know it's nothing new under the sun, but um, we were talking about domestic violence. So they wanted to watch A Thin Line Between Love and Hate. What do y'all know about A Thin Line Between Love and Hate? <laughs> right, right, that part. Right. So they wanted to um, watch that and then have a discussion afterwards about the Title IX issues within domestic violence, yeah. which is great. So that's how we can marry those two together for programming sake. But we don't have that depiction that we need that is current to look at the current culture of HBCU campuses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that's my that's my concern. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about, you know, TV One continuing showing that, but my concern is are they showing it from a very relative uh, position. Well, you have a very unique stance and I, I want to get your take on it. We we're at the, almost at the end of our show, but you were a part, you graduated from University of Alabama. Yes. <laughs> undergrad. And now, and then you have come, you, you, you got your teeth into this HBCU culture. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of 
hypotheticals between PWI, the blacks at PWI, and the blacks at HBCU, which is predominant black. But what what's what's one of the the differences, if you can say, um, of 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 terms of the fostering of who you are uniquely, you as a black man. Mm-hmm. How how did you see that, or how did you see that different from being in the PWI culture, and now that you are in in the HBCU culture and having to foster that sense of HBCU culture as dean of student life? What's the the main difference? What's some of the differences that you that you kind of see? I'm gonna try to answer this without getting in trouble from either <laughs> campus, <laughs> especially work. So, um, what's very interesting is. My um, my undergraduate chapter for my fraternity, we actually facilitated this conversation mm-hmm. at the University of Alabama, right. but we also had Stillman students to come over to be a part of the conversation, mm-hmm. and it was a great conversation. I think it's one that needs to be had um, that needs to be had again. Mm-hmm. But I think for me and my experience, the difference that I've seen is. The Dr. Stacy Jones, the um, soon-to-be Dr. Latoya Scott, um, and some more, so many more relevant people, um, the Lawrence Jacksons, all of these people have been mentors in my life, but they were the ones that were directly connected to me that said, be unique and be unique in every space and don't shy away from it. Don't shrink who you are because if you do you'll always lose that sense of you that is very true to you. Working at the HBCU that I'm at now, I've been able to also be that reflection to other students Mm -hmm. and push uniqueness, push being confident in who you are Mm 1,000% and not shying away from it. I'm not saying that it's not taught at uh, at this institution. I think it is. I don't think that... It's a lot of it that we look for that comes from black institutions in general, mm-hmm. especially when you start talking about black institutions and black church. Right. I think it is one of those things that it, as black people in our culture, we don't do too well with too many things that are unique. Something has got to stay the same right, right. and that something has got to be many things. <laughs> tradition. Tradition. Ab- it's got to be traditional. Absolutely. And the moment that we stop, step outside of tradition is the moment that it's all red alerts. We start scrambling around. It's like the culture is at hand and it's falling apart. Well, you can't say that. You can't say that it's falling apart mm-hmm. because if I've been sent to be the unique individual that I am, if we all believe Jeremiah when God told him, you know, you, I knew you before you were formed in your mother's right, womb. Right. So if you knew me before then, and we're taking from that history lesson, if you knew me before then, when I get here, how do I work with these people? Or how do I be uniquely me in these spaces? Mm-hmm. And we need people like that, that are saying, be you fully. Right. But I do think that is a challenge that I've seen within HBCUs and PWIs, because at the PWI, I was able to get that fostering from black people that were also in that unique space. Be you, be unique. Right. It doesn't matter, but be you. And I had to learn to do that in a white space. Right. Which was completely different too. Yeah. But also doing that in a black space is also completely different it's as well. Also too. completely different. Yes. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges is helping our students 
develop and evolve to the full potential of the uniqueness of who they are individually. Every student is not going to be the same. Everything that we put in place to help every student is not going to be the same exact resource that is needed. It might be a little too much or it might be too less, but we've got to learn how to uniquely evolve to each individual since this is our space and the job that we took up. So I think that that is one of the challenges we've got to figure out how to answer and how to prepare them for. Yeah. I think, I mean, because I, I, one of the things when I was, again, with FSU and Florida A&M, you know, the whole idea is there was more pressure on the FSU black students mm -hmm. to be uniquely them. Right. Because the cosmology there is not them. Right. I mean, from a majority. I mean, mm -hmm. They're living in a, still in a white Southern world. Right. And you're matriculating in this Southern white world. And you, the whole, the challenge is maintaining who you are. As opposed to when I was at Florida A&M, there, there was a lot of, okay, let's teach this from the inside out. Mm -hmm. That we got a lot of black psychology, African psychology. We got a lot of, a lot of that, you know, mm -hmm. at, at the HBCUs. So... You know, it wasn't this whole thing about be different in this world, you yeah. know, from uh, as, as a real experience on campus. They taught us more of there is a world outside of this college campus that you must maintain your uniqueness yeah. to. Uh, FSU students, my baby brother went to FSU and it was even on this campus. This campus is a microcosm mm -hmm. of the world that you've got to be unique in. Right. And so, you know, so it's it's the same lesson, but I think at times it's a different level of intensity mm -hmm. that at Stillman College, it would not be the, the, you don't have to talk about, you know, microaggressions and all that on the campus right. as you would at a UA. Right. You know, uh, and then, but but there is a world. Mm -hmm. There is a world that you got to deal with when you leave here that you need to be very fully aware of, as right. opposed to the student that is on UA's campus and trying to find their way as a black individual in a white world mm -hmm. and having to actualize that right now. Like, yes. you got to be who you are, you know, and you're a chocolate brother. You ain't no, right. you're not one of the mulattoes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you're a chocolate brother, so you got to be exactly who you're going to be, you know, in, in that space. And I, I, you know, I always wanted to have that conversation and to have students articulate that conversation mm -hmm. because just because you're a black person that went to a white school, you're not better than the person at HBCU, but neither because you are more black or more authentically African right. because you went to an HBCU, are you better than the one that went to the white school? Yeah, so one of the things um, I had to learn and unpack after I graduated mm -hmm. was that I was a part of this imaginary, some people would say it's imaginary, 1%. Uh -huh. I, at the time, had a low fade, and my first name is Gregory, but I don't like to tell people my first name is Gregory. Right. I go by my first middle name, Xavier. Right. So, um, yes, I have four names. It is what it is. Because <laughs> I'm but, okay. Yeah, okay, gotcha. So, um, I go by Xavier. But I had to decide who I was going to be because of code switching. Yeah. When I walk in the room at the white institutions, am I going to be Gregory or am I Xavier? Yeah. I want to be Xavier because that's who I am at home. Yeah. So, when I walk in and I introduce myself as Xavier, I do have to also say Xavier without an R. 
Yeah. Because I always get Xavier or Xavier. Yeah. And even if I say, once I say Xavier without an R, it's two or three more times I have to introduce myself to the same individual. Right. And then they still call me Xavier and I just have to roll on with it and just be okay. Cool. We can get past that. But I had a low fade at the time. Always clean cut. Always, you know, dressed like, as my mama would say, like somebody loved me. So <laughs> right, right. always, you know, clean cut, got it together, always had it on a belt, shirt always sucked in, right. bow tie, tie, whatever. That was that's always been me. But it wasn't until I graduated that I understood what they meant by the one percent. Yeah. Because now it is it's a point for me to grow my hair out. I thought I was gonna do the whole lock journey. Yeah. Definitely not gonna be a thing, but I don't know. But I now have two strand twists. Hair is growing out. I it I make it a point. For me to grow my hair up because the higher that I climb in my career, wherever God takes it, I want there to always be an image of a chocolate brother yeah. having hair in places of leadership. Wow. Because we don't get to see that often, especially when it comes to corporations. Right. Higher uh, educational systems and institutions of higher learnings are also corporations. Sure, true. But we don't always look at it that it's still a corporation. corporation right. We always think higher education. So there was a whole discussion my dad and I had at one point where I was already working at the job at the University of Alabama and I applied for the full-time role because it was a temp role. And I didn't get the job, but I continued to work in the role. And he was like, well, you didn't get it because your hair is blue. No, that's not why I got it. I didn't get it. Because at the time, the executive director was saying, you know, Xavier, we want someone who looks multicultural, who can speak to these things. I said, so should I change my hair color? She said, no, because this is what the university is looking for. This is what the culture of the world is right. also moving to. Right. So I decided to stand in that 1% space after I had come back and grow my hair out and had uh, colored my hair, it's blue now, and I'm working at this corporation. Mm-hmm. Now my hair is blue. And I'm applying for jobs in corporations with blue hair and long hair. But we know that a lot of the conversation at the time, which I know we don't have time to get into, the conversation at the time in the world was how institutions were not set up for the representation of people of minority cultures with their hair. There were black young men who were not able to graduate from high schools because of their hair or the type of shoe when they got to graduation. And my younger brother, who was 10 years and two days younger than me, had locks at the time and his tips were red. So I wanted to be his representation that when you go somewhere, regardless of what you look like, you can still be up there. You can still do what you want to do or what you're created to do and not have to, you're still going to go through the affliction. Sure. They're still going to. It's part, it's part of it. It's yeah. part of it. But another thing for my people, like my immediate people, my family, the we look very young. Yeah. So on a daily basis, if my brother and I are standing next to each other because he's taller and he's bigger because he plays football, people think that he's older and I'm the younger brother. Yeah. People on a daily basis think that I am a student at Stillman. I mean, because you got that baby face. I, because I have a baby face right. and I can't grow facial hair. So everyone thinks that I'm a student or I'm 20 plus. <laughs> no, listen, he thinks you 20 plus. Right. So anyway, so those things, that's another caveat to, yeah. you know, having to grow up and also understand what is at play when Wait. you go to these different institutions as well. Wow. Listen, y'all, we've got, oh, I got to get 
Dr. Dr. Jackson. I got to get him back here. It's going to be marvelous. I know it. Listen, this is the Coach Cole with Elspeth Smith right here on Praise 93.3. We've got more to cover. Don't miss it. This is a world premiere. What an amazing day we have had on the Culture Cole today. But listen, our time is up. But I am glad and grateful for Dean Xavier Jackson from Stillman College coming to drop some information on the HBCU significance, relevance, and resources. Let's do all that we can do to make sure that our HBCU in this city, in Tuscaloosa, thrives. And if you're listening to me from all around the country, find an HBCU, figure out what their mission is, and connect yourself. Send your students there. Send your children there. That will be definitely vital. Listen, it's time for me to go. But listen, know that I love you like my grandmama and my mama would always say at the end of every phone call. I love your bushel, I love your peck, and I love you a hug around the neck. This is the Culture Call with yours truly, L. Spencer Smith, right here on the greatest radio station, Praise 93.3. Y'all be good, treat each other right, make an impact in the world. Peace.